Hi, this is Michael Buffer, and welcome to the Box Hard Podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Mikey Garcia. It's the monster from the swamps, Regis Ruguru Program. Hey, what's up? This is King Carlos Molina, former IBF world champ. This is Michael, the bounty hunter, 2012 Olympian and your people's champ. This is Charlie Edwards, flyweight champion of the world. This is Fast Eddie Chambers, and you're listening to the Box Hard Podcast with my main man, Joey Coastman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 289 of the Box Hard Podcast. I'm your host, Joey Coastman. I'm joined as ever by one of my best friends in this world. It is, of course, former heavyweight world title challenger, Mr. Fast Eddie Chambers. Eddie, how you doing, my man? I'm good, man. How you feeling? Always good when speaking with you, my friend. Always good when speaking with you. I'm excited for this week's show. We're going to have on two guests, which is back to normal. Uh, we're going to get on, of course, Craig Spider-Richards, who's boxing for a world title on Saturday. And towards the end of the show, at the very end, we're going to have um, a, a in-depth, an in-depth interview, I should say, with... One of the very best ever, in my opinion, Mr. Roy Jones Jr. It is unbelievable. I'm really, really looking forward to the listeners getting to hear that. Um, anyway, before we get into that, let's let's dive into the review part of the show. We're going to start here at the Palau Olympic Val de Hebron in Barcelona, Catalonia, Spain. Uh, this one, of course, took place last Friday. It was um, April 23rd, a couple of days before my birthday. Um, yeah, so that, that was, you know, it was a good card in Spain, actually. It was kind of like Britain against Spain, and we didn't do very well, to be honest with you. Um, I'm going to start with, I guess, the main event. Sandor Martin, now 38-2. and two. It was his 40th fight. He was able to unanimously, over 12 rounds, beat our very own Kay Prosper, who's now 14-2 and two with a draw. It was for the EBU European Super Lightweight title. K Prosper had a point deducted in the 8th round and another point deducted in the 11th round. The referee was absolutely appalling, by the way, but I think it was, you know, a fight really that had the writing on the wall before it, before it happened, you know. Um... Sandor Martin's not really a puncher. Prosper's not really a puncher. It had the distance written all over it, and it went the distance. And like I say, Prosper showed some some um, some skills in there. You know, it was the first time I think he'd been on TV. I was happy for him getting the opportunity. He was boxing in Orthodox. He was boxing in Southpaw. The referee was awful, like I say, but. You know, he showed us a few areas to his game, and I actually am quite excited to see what he can do when he returns back to Britain. There's, you know, there's a few fights domestically for him, I feel. But yeah, he doesn't have the prettiest looking record, but hopefully he can still get an opportunity. I think Sandor Martin is quite special, not perhaps as special as the commentary were, were, you know, leading us on to believe, but... Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, elsewhere on the card, we had Andoni Gargo against friend of the show, Gavin McDonnell. Um, a bit of a shock, really, in my opinion. I thought Gavin McDonnell was going was gonna to win that fight quite easily, actually. I've seen Andoni Gargo before. He's a tough guy. Um, you know, Lee Selby, I think, managed to stop him late on in their fight. But he's a tough guy. I think he's improved since losing to Selby. But he's not really that good, you know, he's not really that good. And I think against someone who's as fluid a boxer as Gavin McDonnell, I just didn't think that he'd be able to cause Gavin any trouble, really. Um, 
24 and 3 with four draws now, Mr. Gargo, and Gavin McDonald now 22 and 2 with three draws. A technical draw um, in the fifth round. You know, the, the, the referee straight away stopped the fight in the fifth round as soon as the bell went to begin the round. And, you know, he sent Gavin McDonald over to the doctor. I think it was the second time he'd gone over there for an inspection and they stopped the fight then and there. And I think, to be honest with you, um, Gavin McDonald was quite lucky, quite fortunate. And I think there was one awful scorecard by the British judge, but the other two judges had it a draw. So that's why it ended up being um, a technical draw. But yeah, very hard done by, I think, Andoni Gargo. Um, for me, I mean, he, he was probably winning that fight. He was like, you know, all over Gavin McDonald. Like I say, he calls the cut, and they said it was from a head clash. But I don't think it was. I mean, they showed a replay. I'm not sure if it was, to be honest with you. So I felt like he was quite hard done by there. But listen, I don't really, you know, I don't really care too much. I, I am, um, you know, a big fan of Gavin McDonald. So uh, I'm giving my opinion, but I'm, I'm kind of happy for Gavin, um, if I'm being honest, which is which is all I ever will be. Um, elsewhere on the card, we had... Uh, Kerman Laharaga getting in there against Jez Smith. What a fight this was, by the way. Um, Kerman Laharaga now 32-2. and two. Jez Smith now 12-3 and three with a draw. Unbelievable fight, I have to say. Um, Jez Smith had Kerman Laharaga down in the third round, and he also had him down, I think it was in the fourth round. Um, brilliant start to the fight for Jez Smith. You know, he's got a good boxing brain. Uh, he, he doesn't always put it all together on the night, I don't think. But yeah, beautiful uppercut from him in the third down went Leharaga, he jumped straight back up, but it was a beauty of a shot from Smith, he was boxing out of his skin, and I didn't give him a chance going into this fight, I really didn't, I I just couldn't see a way, I thought Leharaga, Leharaga would take him out, um, and, and possibly quite early, and then of course he put him down again in the fourth round, it was a big right hand from Leharaga, and Smith came back with that same kind of screw shot uppercut, and down he went again for the second time there. Um, I felt that Jez Smith's judge of distance was was laser-like. It was it was unbelievable. And whenever Leharaga did get close, he grab hold. It was smart tactics. And Smith's hand speed as well was was on another level to the Spaniard. Um, but yeah, the very next round, round six, Leharaga, you know, he seemed to find another gear and he really put it on Jez Smith. Brutal body shots, which we've seen before. Bradley Skeet could tell you about those. Uh, big head shots as well to follow. And down Jez Smith went. He got back up and the bell went for the end of the round. So he kind of got saved there by the bell. And then, you know, he came out in the in the next round, which, like I say, was round seven. And I felt it was a tad bit premature, maybe, from the referee. Um, I think, again, the writing was on the wall at that point. He was in big trouble. There's no doubt about that. But... Yeah, Jez Smith, after the the dream start to the fight, it all just came crumbling down so quickly. So I was very, um, you know, upset for him because he is a guy that hasn't had it easy either. He's had to kind of come up on the small hall shows and then he gets late notice jobs and stuff like that. And yeah, it was a big opportunity for him and he was boxing tremendously. And then, you know, it all comes crashing down. So very, very sad for him. Hopefully there's another opportunity for him out there. Uh, moving out now to the convention center in Japan. I just don't know what to say about this one. Daigo Higa, now 17-2 um, and two with a draw. He lost a unanimous decision over 12 rounds to Ryosuke Nishida, who was 3-0 going in, now of course 4-0. 
It was for the WBO Asia Pacific Bantamweight title. Um, I just don't know what's going on with Daigo Higa because he's a guy who, for me, was, you know, one of the real top guys to look out for coming out of Japan across all the weights, really, knocking everyone out. Then, of course, he got knocked out himself by Christopher Rosales. That was back in 2018. Since then, he knocked out a guy who was 7-4 and four with three draws. So what's, what does that mean? Uh, and he was coming off about two years out of the ring. Okay, whatever. Then he gets in with a guy who was 5-0 and oh with a draw. And he got a majority draw over um, over 10 rounds. That was in, in October of 2020. Then he had a fight in December of 2020 against a guy who was 16-8. and eight. He was able to get him out of there. Then the very first sniff at a step-up was against this guy who was only 3-0, and oh, Nishida. And I don't know if he had much of an amateur background or anything, but a brilliant win for him to do that. And yeah, it seems like Daigo Higa's just kind of burned out really quickly. He was a guy that no, you know, no way in the world would have been going the distance in any fight. And now it's happened a few times um, when he stepped up. You know, it's happened, I think, three times out of three or whatever, or two times out of two since getting knocked out. So he seems like he's not the same fighter he once was. Um... So yeah, moving on from that, moving out now to York Hall in Bethnal Green, London, the mecca of boxing over here. Um, on the undercard, let's start with um, David Adelaide against Camille Sokolowski. Wow, what a place to start here. Camille Sokolowski, one of the most dangerous heavyweight journeymen there is in the game. Um, Sokolowski definitely won the fight for me. I wasn't Strictly scoring it round by round, but I could see with my eyes what was going on there. Adelaide really was struggling when he was being pushed back, and he 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 needs to calm down, I think, from calling out the likes of Nathan Gorman. Sokolowski was pulled in as well at late notice, too. Um, I didn't think they'd give it to him, which they didn't, and I actually had a bet on David Adelaide to win on points, which... I think was kind of easy money, really. Uh, they didn't give it to him on the cards. Adelaide, for me, was a little bit exposed. And I hate to say that because I like the guy. I like his attitude. I like the fact he was a big punching heavyweight with a fantastic-looking body that excites people. But, you know, when he was put on the back foot, he, he didn't really know what to do. And everything seemed to kind of just vanish. Where was the power? Where was that power? You know, on the back foot, he, he seemed to not be able to, to generate that power that he usually has when he's coming forward like a wrecking ball. Um, I'd like to see the rematch. Sokolowski, like I say, very, very dangerous fight for pretty much anyone. And if you didn't know already, if you're a promoter listening to me, do not take a fight with this guy. If you're trying to turn an, an, you know, an undefeated heavyweight into a cash cow, don't fight Camille Sokolowski. Um, but yeah, a lot of people were very, um, you know, disappointed with those, with those. Well, it wasn't scorecards; it was the referee that scored it, Marcus McDonnell. Yeah, he's done David Adelaide a real favour there. He's he's somehow now six and zero, and he went the distance for the first time. Um, also on the card, Callum Johnson now nineteen and one, a TKO in the second round against Emil Markic. That one was for the WBO Global Light Heavyweight Title. Really pleased for Callum Johnson. Um, you know, he hasn't had it easy. He's another guy that hasn't had it easy. And he was coming off quite a bit of inactivity. His first fight with Frank Warren, I knew that he was going to try and make a statement. He came out straight away, not playing any games, not wasting any time. He was keen to make a statement, like I say, on his Frank Warren debut. He was all over Markic, and he walked into a brilliant right hand himself that staggered him badly, Johnson. But he did quickly recuperate, and he went back to hurting 
his his opponent. A big first round in in the end for Callum Johnson, and he came out in the second. Then he did the business. He pinned Markic on the ropes and just started banging to the body, into the head. Nothing came back from Markic, and Steve Gray jumped in to stop it. I think it was the right thing to do from the referee there. Um, a big win for Callum Johnson. I think he becomes by by quite a distance the the quickest man to stop that guy there. Uh, elsewhere on the card, Denzel Bentley lost his O. He's now 14-1 and with a draw. He was knocked out in the third round against the previously undefeated and still undefeated Felix Cash, who's now 14-0 and and he's now the new Commonwealth and British middleweight champion. Um, well, I think he took the British from Denzel, actually. So he's the new British um, middleweight champion. He's, he still holds the Commonwealth. So good win for Felix Cash. That was... On paper, going to be a really exciting fight. But to be honest, Cash absolutely dominated him. And he, he seemed to really walk through Denzel Bentley. A big statement. And again, there's so many big fights out there for him. I'm really pleased for him. And once again, it's more momentum for that fantastic gym. You know, we're going to be speaking to Craig Richard shortly. He's from that gym. What a way to, to bounce into fight week for a world title fight. You've got the likes of Felix Cash doing that to Denzel Bentley. You've got Connor Ben doing what he did to Samuel Vargas. The momentum, you know, in this gym is unbelievable. And I really hope Craig Richards can become victorious when we speak to... Well, not when we speak to him, because he's not fighting then. But when he fights on Saturday, I really hope he can do it. He is up against it. Moving out now to the Silver Spurs Arena in Florida, USA. This one over here, a top rank show. Um, let's start with the, uh, let's start with, let's start with the main event here. Um, Emmanuel Navarrete now 33 and 1, a TKO in the 12th and final round against Christopher Diaz. He came, he really tried to give it his best, Christopher Diaz. He's now 26 and 3. It was for the WBO featherweight world title. Um, it was a great, great fight. Navarrete really seems to be maturing as a champion now. Um, he's just getting better and better all the time, it seems. Obviously, he's recently moved up in weight, and he seems to be just as dominant at this weight as he was uh, down at 122. Um, I was devastated for Diaz because the referee stopped it with only 16 seconds left on the clock in round 12. I was kind of gutted that he couldn't see the distance. He, he tried to win the belt for his family, for his children, and he put that pressure on himself, which I don't think is a good thing to do. But he gave it everything he could, and he just wasn't as good as Navarrete. So the right man won there, of course, and what a way to close the show. However, on the undercard... We didn't see this one coming either. Edgar Belanga, 16-0 with 16 first-round knockouts. He stepped in against Demond Nicholson, who was a huge underdog. He was actually 100-1 to in, in the betting um, odds to, to win by knockout in each round. So if you put a pound on him winning by – or a dollar on him winning by knockout from round one to round eight – you could put, you know, $1 per round. You'd win $100 if he got it. And he didn't get it, even though he's a big puncher, Damon Nicholson. He didn't get it, but it went the distance. Unbelievable. Damon Nicholson now 23-4 and with a draw. And, of course, Belanga 17-0. and Um... He, you know, he goes the distance for the first time there. Credit to Nicholson. He showed a lot of heart. Heart I didn't perhaps think he had. It was a big learning fight for Belanga. He certainly wasn't exposed like a lot of people were trying to say he was. He just showed he is human. He's still um, a, a tremendous prospect. There's still a lot of big fights out there for him. They're talking about the Jesse Hart fight. I wouldn't mind that fight. But I think this particular fight here, eight rounds of experience previously... 
you know, he was he was 16 and 0 going in. Previously, to get eight rounds of experience, it had taken half of his career. So he got half of his career experience in one night there, which just sounds unbelievable. Um, but yeah, he 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 is still a, a prospect to look out for. He still hits hard. None of none of it. I don't think he's a myth. And um, it just it just sets up some great fights in the future. Like I say, Jesse Hart wouldn't mind that, but I don't think Jesse Hart. Um, I don't think there's much in it for Jesse Hart, really. And being a friend of the show, I don't think um, I would advise him to take that fight unless he's getting paid crazy money. Um, anyway, that's it for that one. Um, and yeah, that's actually it for the review part of the show. So just before we wrap up part one, the final thing to do is to welcome our first guest on this week's podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the reigning British light heavyweight champion. It is, of course, Mr. Craig Richards. Craig, welcome back on the show, my man. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure, Craig. So, Craig, we last caught up back in January, obviously a few weeks after that amazing win over Shakam Pitters, which I think was a win that really shocked quite a few people, not myself, but quite a few people. However, this task in front of you on Saturday night obviously is a whole nother level. I still think people are unsure of what level you really are. Some people didn't think you were you were good enough to be British level. You wiped out the undefeated giant to prove that you are at least that level. Um, I don't think many people know how high your ceiling goes. Is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. I think that's fair to say completely. People just don't know how good I can be. Um, they're seeing me coming through the test that I'm not meant to come through pretty comfortably. We know we've seen it on Jake Ball. They didn't think I'd come through that. I came through that pretty comfortably. Shakam Pitters come through that pretty comfortably. And now it's on to the next task. And yet again, they have the same result. They doubt me until I prove them different. And that leads me on perfectly to say, I think that it's, it's, it's right me saying that you seem to fight better when your opposition's better. I feel like you've not looked so great against some real lower level guys, but then you've you've always done your best work when the stakes are high. Um, is is that meaning, you know, is that right? Is that meaning that we're going to see, a, see a, you know, a level of your game that we've never seen before? That's exactly what it is. You see, throughout my career, the higher the opposition, the better I perform. That you give me low-level opposition, sometimes I perform, I drop my level. You give me high opposition, I, I I raise my game, and this would be the highest opposition I would have faced on paper, and still obviously to date. So this is another level that you should see me going through and going through my gears. I prepared hard for it, and I'm ready to to go. Let's go, baby. Um. You're the underdog, Craig, obviously. Do you understand why you're the underdog? Do you feel it's fair that you're in that position in this particular fight? Yeah, the other ones I didn't understand why I was such an underdog. This one I understand very well. He's the WBA Super World Champion. You know, he's beat a few guys on his resume. He's defended the title, I think, a numerous amount of times. He's unbeaten, you know, so it's understandable. And do you anticipate this fight being the hardest fight of your life. I know you're a guy that kind of likes to, you know, visualize a lot of stuff, I feel. And there's been fights that people think, oh, this is going to be a tough one. And like I say, you've just gone through people like nothing. It makes me think of Jake Ball. But is this a fight you look at and think, do you know what? I probably see this as being the toughest challenge yet. I thought that, but I feel so ready. I think like maybe it may not. I don't know. I feel like it should be based on him and his performances and how tough he's showed in the past that it could be potentially, but I feel the way I feel that switched on, I don't know, maybe it's just the way I play it out in my head, obviously it's the only reality when that bell goes Saturday night, 
um, what's going to happen, but I do feel like it could be, it might not be as hard, but it could be unprepared for a hard fight, but you never know with boxing. And this might sound like a crazy question, but do you think it will be easier, Craig, to beat the guy on points or actually stop him? Um, I don't know. Obviously, I always want to get a stoppage if I can get the stoppage. Um, see, if I see the opportunity, I'm definitely going for the stoppage. But if it has to go points, it'll have to go. But I think it'll be easier to stop him then, to be honest. Okay. And, to win on and Craig, if you win... Do you have a plan in place what to do next? Do you have a plan in place what to do next? Should you lose? Of do you course. think that far? What can you tell us? Of course. I thought about this plan. As soon as I win, I'm going to run with the belt, run off and go and celebrate. <laughs> That's my further plan from here on. Um, anything to do career-wise past that, I've not thought about it. Obviously, I'm going to be big fights after that. Um, and I look to embrace that. But I just want to take one step at a time and focus on the task I've got at hand this Saturday. Yeah, and it's such an exciting time, like I say, domestically for the light heavyweights. You've got yourself, obviously, fighting uh, primarily this, this this weekend. You had Callum Johnson on show last weekend. We were supposed to see Anthony Yard. He obviously had to pull out. And I think just today they've made Lyndon Arthur number one with a WBO. So uh, Joe Smith, uh, he's on his his uh, towel, it should, it should, it should seem. Um Yeah, the momentum as well of, of the gym that you're in, Craig, obviously... You know, John Ryder winning just before Christmas. Uh, this year, you've had Joe Caldina winning. Ted Cheeseman with a fight of the year contender. Um, Connor Ben annihilating Samuel Vargas. And Felix Cash walking through Denzel Bentley respectfully. Um, your yeah. gym... Go on. Forget my, 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 I was just before December with John Ryder. We boxed on the same day. Oh, yeah, of course. Ugh. One was in the UK, yeah. one was in the US. But, yeah, of course. What am I going yeah. on about? But um, it's back to your turn, obviously. Um, you know, your gym hasn't always had the smoothest ride. Uh, does 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 the recent form give you that extra buzz, that extra push? Um, yeah, of course. Well, we're all working. The thing is, we're all working very hard. So um, it's only right, really, that we're all now getting the results that we thought like we should um, we should get. Yeah, because I think there was a time where you know, the gym, for whatever reason, weren't getting decisions. There was like a conspiracy that perhaps, I don't know, there was, I don't know, some kind of bad officiating going that way. But now, I mean, wow, the run, like I say, has been perfect, exemplary. And, um, you know, it's it's beautiful. Like I say, I put out a tweet the other day, uh, you know, it's all over to you now. Everyone's got their wins and this is the biggest of them all. So uh, obviously everyone's behind you. Um I want to ask you this one as well, Craig. I want to get your prediction for the main event. Obviously, pay-per-view. Chisora Parker, who wins that one, big man? Um, I'm not sure. It's a good fight. Um, obviously, we've got the Brit against the guy from um, New Zealand. Yeah. Um, it should be a very good very good fight. They're both of good, high standard. Um, it's, it's just a clash of styles. I'm... It just depends on who can impose their style better because she's always a very strong man. If he hits you, he's clearly going to feel it. And Parker's very skillful and got quick hands. So I'm interested in that fight, to be honest. But to be honest, I'm more focused on my own fight. But it's an interesting matchup. Yeah. All right, man. And like I say, I know that you're in the bubble. Like, like I say, I want to keep it really nice and short. I appreciate you giving me time. Just before we sign out, my man, what's your closing words just to the listeners? I'm sure that every single person that listens to this will be supporting you. Uh, what's your message to those guys, Craig? 
thank you for everyone who got behind me and supported me. I appreciate that, and I want to bring it home Saturday night. There we go, short and sweet. Listen, Craig, it's always great speaking with you. I'm so excited for the fight. I'll be tuned in, hoping and praying you can become world champion on Saturday night, and I look forward to seeing another picture of you on Sunday morning sleeping next to a new belt. Ah, me too, me too. (laughs) Me too, God willing. Thank you, brother. Okay, now it's time for part two on this week's show. This part, of course, the news part of the show. Three pieces of news to mention, um, and they involve three friends of the show, which is nice, actually. We're going to start here. Um, Sam Eggington, he takes on former world champion, big friend of the show. He's on the intro every week. Mr. King Carlos Molina. That one's going to be for the WBC Silver middleweight title. So Carlos has got... Eggington going up to middleweight there. That's going to be on May 22nd, live and free on Channel 5. So that's going to be for everyone to watch. I'm really excited for the fight. I hope to possibly go over there, actually. I think it's in Coventry. Um, So, yes, Sam Eggington against Carlos Molina. Very, very interesting one there. Elsewhere, Michael McKinson has signed a promotional deal with Matram Boxing. I think that's a great move for him. Again, he's a guy that's had to do it on the small hall shows. And, you know, he obviously penned a deal with MTK. And he's had some good fights recently, stuff like that, especially that win over Congo. So he deserves this opportunity. He really does. So I'm excited to see where his future lies. And We've got um, Chantel Cameron. She is having the fight um, against Melissa Hernandez. It's it's been rescheduled. It's now going to be part of the Devin Haney Linares undercard on May 29th in Las Vegas. So, please for Chantel Cameron getting some experience there stateside in her professional career. And again, she takes on Melissa Hernandez, who, like I say. Um, is a really good fighter herself, actually. So that one should be quite interesting. But anyway, that's it for the news part of the show. Moving on now to the preview part of the show. We're going to start here with a card that takes place tomorrow, Friday the 30th of April at the York Hall in Bethnal Green. Um, Let's start with the undercard. A few prospects that are getting out that we should mention here. We've got... um, Josh Frankham and Levi Frankham, both on the card there against guys with, with a lot of losses and, um, and and not many wins. So, you know, two journeymen there. Ryan Garner, good to see him back. He's 9-0. He takes on Paul Holt, who's 7-10. Uh, that one is over six rounds there. Troy Williamson, 15-0 with a draw, takes on Kieran Smith, who's 16-0. That, that could be quite good there over 10 rounds. Michael Conlon, 14-0 in a 10-rounder against... Iron up Baluta, probably saying his first name wrong. Uh, he's 14 and 2, but he's coming off a few upsets, actually. A few upset wins. He's got that win over. Um, I, I've been calling him like the Irish Slayer because he's got that win over TJ Doheny, which I think took place in Dubai. Then after that, he went on to beat David Oliver Joyce by knockout in three rounds. So he is in there with Michael Conlon. Um, that could be quite interesting. And the main event for the IBF World Flyweight title, we've got Maruti Umfalane. I think I'm probably saying that wrong again. I know the correct pronunciation, but I've forgotten it about five times today. Um, but yeah, the you know the reigning uh, world champion from South Africa. Really, really good fighter. He's been he's been asking for a big fight for a long, long time. He's 38 years of age now. Hasn't lost a fight since 2008, which was to Nonito Donaire. Um, 
you know, really accomplished fighter with a ton of experience, you know. So, so like I say, he's 39 and 2 with, uh, with 26 KOs. Been in there with, with some great fighters, like I say. He's been in there and knocked out guys like... Um, who did he knock out? He knocked out John Real Casimero. That's the guy that knocked out Sonny Edwards' brother, Charlie. He also knocked out Zelani Tete. Even though these fights were a long, long time ago, this guy has got tons and tons of experience, and no one's wanted to fight him for a long time. But like I say, in the other corner, Sonny Edwards, 15-0 with four KOs. Um, it's going to be really interesting here. Really, really interesting. I hope he can do it. It'd be great to get another world champion, especially one from my hometown, properly my hometown um, of Croydon. So... I'd love to see Sonny Edwards pull it off, and I'm going to be tuned in with, with an eager eye for sure. I really hope he can do it. Uh, it's a big step up, though. Um, moving out now to the Manchester Arena in Lancashire, United Kingdom. On this card here, let's start with the undercard. Scott Fitzgerald makes his ring return. 14-0, no opponent just yet. Campbell Hatton, 1-0 in a four-rounder, no opponent just yet. Um, James Tennyson, 28-3. He fights for... The uh, the vacant IBO world lightweight title against Giovanni Straffon, who's 23 and 3 with a draw. Um, a lot of people not happy with this because this guy has kind of been plucked from nowhere. Straffon, uh, he's a Mexican fighter, never been stopped in those three losses, and they've came against guys who I've never heard of. So I wouldn't be surprised to see, um, you know, to see James Tennyson get in there and do what he does best, which is put it right on someone early and probably get the the stoppage quite quick but this guy's a tough mexican perhaps so we shall see um elsewhere on the card katie taylor 17 and 0 defensor wbc wba ibf and wbo female lightweight titles against natasha jonas um I've got to be honest, I'd love to see Natasha Jonas win this fight because I think she's been a little bit hard done by recently. Um, and I don't think you can dislike her. I think she's such a positive person for women's boxing. But it's a tall order. It really is. And I'm even perhaps leaning towards Katie Taylor getting the stoppage, which doesn't usually happen. And the reason I say that is because I remember Natasha getting stopped by Vivian Obernauf, the lady that went on to um, allegedly kill her, her 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 boyfriend. She's in jail at the minute. Um, I remember her stopping Natasha Jonas, and she's not really a massive puncher, and she certainly doesn't punch with the precision of Katie Taylor, who, by the way, is the lady who um, you know is comfortable at this weight. I think this is more. Katie's weight than Natasha Jonas so I'm kind of leaning towards uh, Katie Taylor maybe even getting the stoppage but you know I don't see a way she loses to Natasha Jonas even though Natasha Jonas herself can punch uh, may the best woman win I almost said may the best man win um, elsewhere on the card Dimitri Bivol 17 and 0 friend of the shows defending his WBA world super light heavyweight title against a man we just spoke to a few moments ago Craig Richards I'd love to see Craig pull it off he is 16 and 1 with a draw Craig Richards very much up against it under no illusion that he isn't up against it you know he, he, he believes that this is a tall order this is a tough task and it's probably the hardest fight he's ever going to have been in in his career, maybe ever will be in. We shall see. But I'd love him to find a way. And like I said to Craig, we're still a little bit unsure of where his ceiling is. He could do it. 
He's shocked us before. He seems to raise his game when he needs to. But this is the top level of the sport. I'd love to see him be able to find the gear that we've never seen before. That would be something. But it is a tough, tough task. And I understand that. I like both guys. Obviously, Craig's way more my man than, than uh, Bivol is. But, oh, I hope Craig can somehow do it. It's a, it's a huge step up in class, though, from you know from winning a British title last time out. Uh, elsewhere on the card, we have Chris Eubank Jr., 29-2, and in a fight against Marcus Morrison, 23-3. and I don't like this fight at all, and I say this because Chris Eubank Jr., I don't understand why this guy's had such an up-and-down career. Not in terms of his, his wins and losses, but he's had an up-and-down career in terms of his opponent selection. You know, he went from having a really close fight against Billy Joe Saunders, even, <laughs> I'm talking about that fight there, you were on the card that night, Eddie, he had a really close fight. Did you actually watch that fight, like, in the flesh? Yeah, yeah I did. Okay, so you was out there. I at the time, I it was a strange one. Um, do you know what? I'm gonna just quickly try to keep it uh, short here. But I remember that night there, and um, and basically I didn't have a ticket because I snuck in. So I was like, <laughs> this is really kind of embarrassing now. But I snuck into the venue, so I was basically sitting in people's seats, and I was kind of being told like they were coming back from the toilet or whatever, and they're saying. Hey, you're in my seat. So I had to like move about 10 times trying to, you know, <laughs> trying to uh, like, you know, <laughs> blend in and not get thrown out by the security. And, you know, I remember for some reason, the like the people that were controlling the venue, they accidentally kept all the men's toilets locked. So no one could go to the toilet. And as they do, um, you know, in, in, in parts of London and I guess parts of everywhere, really. People just started urinating on the floor wherever they fancied to. So um, quite a disgusting thing. But yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, there was a lot of urine on the floor everywhere. It was disgusting, actually. But anyway, he had a really close fight with Billy Joe. Billy Joe perhaps just nicked it. It was very close. Then he dropped down and boxed the likes of Dmitry Chudinov, Tony Jetta. Then he had a bit of a step up against Gary Spike O'Sullivan. Okay, fair enough. Then he fought Nick Blackwell, and obviously. He put Nick Blackwell in a coma, and it's, it's terrible. Then he fought Tom Doran, who never fought again after that. I think he got injured in the fight. I'm not sure. He never, ever boxed again. And then he went on this crazy run where he boxed Reynold Quinlan, who was awful. Then he boxed Arthur Abraham. Okay, fair enough. Then he boxed Yildirim, because he had to, because he was in the World Boxing Super Series. Um, you know, he beat him nice and easy. Um, stopped him, obviously, really early. Good win. Then he, then he boxes George Groves. Doesn't get embarrassed, you know, he lost the fight, but didn't get embarrassed, he was coming for Groves in the last round when Groves had dislocated his shoulder, then after that, the mammoth dropped down in class again to JJ McDonough, you know, he gets him out there early, it proved nothing, then he goes back in against James DeGaulle, who at this point was really a shell of his former self, you know, it's just been so stop-start, like he, he beat he beat James DeGaulle, fair enough, good win. And then he has the fight with Korobov, which I was looking forward to, and it ended prematurely. You know, we all know what happened there. Korobov got injured. He was possibly going to go on to win the fight because he won the first round. I mean, that doesn't mean much. And then another huge drop down in level to Marcus Morrison. I just can't believe it, really. I mean, Marcus Morrison, you know, he's been beaten by journeyman like... He's got three losses. He's he's lost to um, to Tyan Booth, 
who at the time was 11 and 11 with five draws. He's lost to Alistair Warren, who was 10 and 18 with four draws. And he got stopped, didn't he? And he I'm sure, no, no, he didn't get stopped in his other one, but he lost to um, to Jason Wellborn as well. So, yeah, it's, it's this guy. Like I, I like Marcus Morrison, but this is just... This is a dangerous fight, you know. When when we're talking about someone like Chris Eubank Jr., I don't want to put this out in the atmosphere, but when we're talking about a guy who's put someone in a coma before, I don't like this fight. This this is another drop-down in level, you know. I don't like this fight. This is a dangerous fight. He takes Marcus Morrison out maybe in a round or two. I'd be quite surprised if it, if it went past, like, four rounds. I'd be stunned. So I'm going to be betting big on like the first or second round knockout. This is a mismatch beyond belief. You know, he's gone from beating Degal, you know, beating Matty Korobov by hook or by crook, down to fighting Marcus Morrison. That's no disrespect to Marcus Morrison, but what is Eubank Jr. doing with his career? Why isn't he fighting these big names? He's a big name himself. Why isn't he going for a world title? I just don't mm. understand it. I just don't understand it. But anyway, forget about him. Um... Let's move on to the main event, Eddie. I'm going to go straight to you because I've done talking for uh, too much on this show already. Derek Chisora, 32-10 and 10, in a 12-rounder against Joseph Parker, 28-2. and two. Talk to me. Yeah, this is a good fight. It's an interesting fight. I mean, obviously, Chisora is not the same Chisora in the beginning. Otherwise, the fight would be even more interesting. But... Um, He's still going to bring it. He's still going to beat Derek Chisora. He's still going to come out there and be active and try to be in his face and make the fight as difficult for him as he possibly can. I just don't see him being able to, you know, overcome, you know, the the, the gap. And I don't, not just age, but just, uh, you know, level of where they are competing at this time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, look, of course, Chisora is still trying to beat at, compete at the top level, but he's just a, a, a shade or two below what he used to be. And that's going to be the difference in this fight. I just think that at this stage, uh, Joseph Parker is a little bit too much for him. It's going to be a very interesting fight still. I still think he's going to bring it. And he's going to do everything that he possibly can, similar to how he was doing with Dillian. Um, but I just don't think he's going to be able to um, obviously finish the fight on top. I think uh, Joseph Parker is going to be able to keep him, not so much keep him at bay, because like I said, Chisora is going to keep coming no matter what. But um, at some point, if he gets a little bit too overzealous with, with his attack, he's, he can get caught and hurt, and he could be put out. So, you know, it's going to it's gonna make the fight exciting for as long as it lasts. Um, but I just see himself making himself a little bit too available for, for um, Joseph Parker to land a good shot. And like I said, at this stage, I don't really know if he's going to have the same punch resistance that he, uh, that he had, you know, in, in, in years past. So, and look, you know, when you take punches – throughout your career and you've been an exciting guy and you've been slinging punches back and forth with guys, your chin doesn't get better as you get older. So <laughs> with that being said, um, I just hope for, you know, for his sake that he stays out of the way too much of these shots and still can make the fight interesting enough to go to a decision. But I don't know if that's going to happen. I'm, I'm actually thinking that, you know, Parker may get him late. And um, like I said, it's an interesting fight, but, but, and I'm, I'd be excited to watch it. I just don't. I just, but I just don't know if uh, Chisora is going to be able to, um, you know, do what's necessary to win it. That's an interesting take, actually, because Joseph Parker was on the show a few weeks back, and he's a friend of the show. I want him to win the fight, but I had to tell him 
honestly, and I think he appreciated it at the time when I said, you know, your last few performances since losing to Dillian White, which was now coming up three years ago, you've looked very flat. And of course, he's had the trainer change. He's moved now to, to Andy Lee. However, it's, it's it remains to be seen what he looks like under Andy Lee. However, he needs to be the old Joseph Parker who had good feet, who had good skills, who knew when to exchange and when not to. Because Derek Chisora, even though I agree to a degree of what you're saying, you said that he's not the same guy and all that stuff, but he's rebranded himself. He doesn't want to box anymore. He is just coming for a war. That's his new name, Derek War Chisora. Some people are under the illusion that he's completely a new fighter. And I actually had a, a couple back and forth the other day on Twitter with, with, with people that were saying this man is never in a dull fight. Lord almighty, go and check some of his fights. I can name you a few right now if you want. He he has never been all action. It's only recently that he's decided to um, rebrand since he's linked up with David Hay and David Hay gave him this, this you know, this war nickname. Um, I think Joseph Parker needs to move his feet in this fight. I think he's been working on that. I think Joseph Parker will win, but both men have got brilliant chins. And mm-hmm. I can't see it ending in the distance. I actually think this is a really safe bet that it goes the distance. I just think Joseph Parker might shade it. Um, but he needs to be mobile. He can't afford to stand there and bang it out with Chisora because that really plays into Chisora's hands, even though he's a little bit, um, I guess, um, long in the tooth. No, 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 that doesn't say that he still can't go out there and win a fight. There's no doubt about it. But I just think, you know, watching different things and different performances. Now, losing to Dillian White doesn't say he's down in class or anything like that. But I'm just saying it's just even and, – and actually, in that performance, I felt like he did great. You know, he just got caught, you know, going toward the end. But that's my point. He just puts himself in, obviously, him saying, war Chisora. He wants he wants a war. And for some people, for some cases, that would be good for him. You know what I mean? Because that's his best chance to win. Case in point, this fight, I feel like that's pretty much his best chance to win. And in most fights, that's going to be his best chance. But it also puts him right on the table. You know what I mean? Like 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 dinner, where you can you can you can catch him coming in too. And I think that's part of what happened with him and Dillian. And I'm thinking it's going to be similar to that in this fight here. I, I'm not sure that he's going to stop him, but I feel like that's going to be the difference in the sense that he's going to be able to be uh, uh, more accurate obviously, and, and, and just in an overall better, probably move better, box better, and it's gonna, I think it's going to put him in position to win. I don't know that it goes the distance or, but, um, or, or by, you know, by decision, I don't know. I, I just feel like, you know, Joseph Parker should be the one to come on the top on this one. Yeah, I agree. And I think that even um, Chisora's last fight against Usyk, even though he lost, I think his, his stocks kind of went up a bit because he really put it on Usyk and um, and I gotta say, I remember saying it to someone at the time. I remember saying if that version of Derek Chisora showed up that he boxed, you know, the version he boxed Usyk with, if that showed up against Anthony Joshua, I, I don't know. That's a, I don't care what anyone says. You can laugh if you want. That I'm not sure about that man putting it on him like that. He can really yeah. put it on guys. But Joseph Park is a big guy himself, and he's mm-hmm. um, he's used to big guys and stuff. Not like Usyk, I think. Um, but anyway, forget about that. Um, 
yeah, that's on pay-per-view, like I say, on Sky. It's £20 to watch that one. You get to see Chisora against Parker in the in the main event. On the undercard, Dimitri Bivol and Craig Richards, obviously, for the world title. Katie Taylor defending all the belts against Jonas. You get a bit of Eubank Jr., a bit of Ricky Hatton's son, Campbell. And if you thought that pay-per-view was bad, which a lot of people are complaining about it, let's go out to Carson, California, where the main event, Andy Ruiz, 33-2, and two, Against Chris Ariola, 38 and 6 with a draw. Eddie, I know that you've got a piggy bank filled up with coins to buy this one, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Do I want to? I already know the outcome right now. I mean, I'm just saying. Um, look, man, I, I got all the respect for Chris Ariola. We used to be stable mates. Uh, he's a tough guy. You know what I mean? He's, he's, he's marketed himself, obviously, to some degree uh, when he was at his height to be an interesting fighter, at least to, to watch and to listen to him speak, even though he said crazy stuff. Mexican-American, so he's definitely a hot, hot commodity in that. But um, Andrew Ruiz is just like, even at the height of his career, I don't, I, I wouldn't have never, I wouldn't have picked him against Ruiz. Ruiz has got too much speed, too much ability. He's, you know, if he comes in dedicated like he looks to be, it's going to be a whitewash. That's just in my opinion. I feel like, Andrew Ruiz is probably as good as, you know, I mean, like he's one of the better heavyweights that isn't, that doesn't have a title right now. And in fact, I, I see why they're making it a pay-per-view because, you know, like I said, they're both Mexican-American fighters. So it's like, they know that they're going to get Mexico. They, they you know, <laughs> I was like Mexico, but they're going to get the Mexican-Americans to, to buy this thing. And it, it's going to do, I don't, I, I guess with them, it's going to do numbers. I don't know how, how many, how many numbers it's going to do with the right, with the rest of the uh, public, but I know with the Mexican Americans, they're definitely going to be watching if they're boxing fans. So, and even if they're not, because a lot of them know who he is now. But um, it's pretty safe to say, yeah, Ruiz is going to take care of this, um, especially Ariola at this stage in his career, where you know he's 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 obviously past where he was at one point. He's still tough. He still wants to make a fight of it, but he's going to be running into a puncher and a guy that has better skills. And don't mind standing right in front of you and, and, and slinging those shots, as you've seen with, you know, one of the best in the world, Anthony Joshua, he was doing it with. So um, I just don't see it going any other way. I mean, hey, look, I've been surprised before. It wouldn't be the first time if, if it went the other way, but I just don't see it happening at this stage. Maybe in the begin at the height of his career, maybe he would add a shot. But at this point, I just don't see it happening. Yeah, and um, neither do I, to be honest. Chris Ariola, well and truly, has his best days behind him. Andy Ruiz, I'm excited to see what he looks like under his new trainer. He's now training with Canelo's team. But, um, yeah, it's bad. It's a pay-per-view. And, obviously, Chris Ariola, he wanted to be the first Mexican to, to win a heavyweight world title. And Andy Ruiz kind of beat him to that. So, um, we shall see. Chris Ariola might turn up really angry. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm going to say this, Joe. He can show up as angry as he wants. Still got to put them gloves on and fight. And uh, anger does not help you in that kind of a situation. To be fair, to be fair, it used to help him. I liked it when he fought um, Seth Mitchell with anger. He was so pissed at him, and he come and yeah. <laughs> he knocked his block yeah. off, didn't he? <laughs> I, I get it. I well, see with Seth Mitchell, and this is no disrespect to Seth, but no, Seth Mitchell course. that could work because Seth, you know, he was a football player turned boxer. He had a good couple. He had a good couple fights. Had good did some numbers and did some good stuff. You know what I mean for for what he was was. And uh, but 
against a, a a guy like Ruiz, different world, different world, completely yeah. different world. So <laughs> we'll see. You'll see. Well, we 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 know we know what's wild. Yeah, no, we do. And elsewhere on the card, Sebastian Fundora, 16 and 0 with a draw. Um, one of the giants at the way, obviously six foot five and a half southpaw. Um, that that he's he's at 154, but I think he can make 147. I think. But anyway, um, yeah. Uh, oh. Say again. <laughs> I said, oh my gosh, go ahead, I'm yeah, listening. Yeah, good guy. <laughs> but um, the one thing I like about this guy, because you get a lot of these tall, lanky guys and they, they're they not really punchers, but he's actually quite a puncher. So I, I enjoy that factor about him. Like I say, 16-0 and with a draw, 11 KOs. He gets in against Jorge Cota, who is a big banger himself, 27 KOs from 30 wins. He's got four losses, however... Um, and those losses came to Jamel Charlo, who was stopped in three. He lost a split decision to Jason Rosario uh, back in, back in uh, it was just two years ago, um, April 2019. He also lost by KO in four to Ericsson Lubin. So he's kind of, you know, he's, he's boxed names and he, he usually loses to the big names. But he is coming off a couple of decent wins. Uh, last time out, his fight uh, that he had... Uh, last year was against Thomas Lamana, where he stopped him in five. That was quite a nice win there. And speaking of Thomas Lamana, he is on the undercard. He's boxing Erislandi Lara. Erislandi Lara, uh, 27 and three with three draws. He fights for the vacant WBA world middleweight title. Oh, so he's moved up to middleweight, Lara. Okay. Uh, Thomas Lamana, 30 and four with a draw, like I say. Uh, elsewhere on the card, we have friend of the show, former world champion Omar Figueroa, 28 and one with a draw. Always in exciting fights. He's a guy that really is always in exciting fights. He takes on Abel Ramos, who's 26 and four with two draws. Ramos coming off a split decision loss over 12 rounds to Yordanis Ugas back in September. Um, other than that, he's a decent fighter. Um, Ramos, and once upon a time, it's funny because once upon a time he beat a guy who no one knew his name. Um, it's even to this day, no one know, knows who he boxed back in um, October of 2018. He stopped this guy in, in one round. No one knows who that guy was. He was a mystery opponent. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's he's generally quite tough, Abel Ramos as well. That's why I like this fight because Figueroa's tough. Figueroa always comes to have a war and... Like I say, Ramos, um, he's been in there with like Ivan Baranchik back in the day. Jamal James, Regis Progre is the only man to have stopped him uh, when he did back in 2015, so a long time ago now. Um, and also Adrian Granados on the card as well against Jose Luis Sanchez. So yeah, some decent name value really on both the pay-per-view events this weekend, even though I don't think either of them are really pay-per-view worthy. I think Eddie Hearn... Eddie Hearn's one's a little bit better than that one in the States. That's just my opinion. But anyways, that is it for the, the the talking part of the show. We've done the review part. We brought you the first guest, Craig Richards. Hopefully, he can win a world title this weekend. We did the news part and the preview part just there. It's now time to wrap up all the talking and go over to one of the very best uh, fighters to ever lace them up. It's, it's now time to welcome our second and final guest, the living legend himself, Mr. Roy Jones Jr. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the former four-weight world champion, the living legend himself, Mr. Roy Jones Jr. Roy, welcome to the show, my man. Hey, thank you, my brother. Glad to be on your show. Hey, it's a pleasure having you on. So, Roy, I'd like to start this interview the same way I start a lot of these types of interviews. What's your earliest memory in boxing? When did you first put on gloves, Roy? 
my earliest memory is back when I saw Muhammad Ali fight Joe Frazier back in 74. I think I was about five years old. My father was watching the fight. I started asking my father then to teach me how to box because I felt like what Muhammad Ali was doing was beating Joe Frazier with his mind. And I felt like mentally I could beat anybody with my mind if I just learned how to throw the, throw the punches. So I asked my father, so I asked my father to teach me how to throw the punches because I knew that if I could throw the punches, I could beat anybody. And obviously, you know, you, you boxed as an amateur. You had somewhere in the region of 134 amateur fights. Um, Roy, tell me, what was your highlight moment of your amateur career? I'm guessing, even though it ended in bad circumstances, it had to be when they stole your gold medal in Seoul career. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was good. That was a highlight, but that wasn't my best highlight. My best highlight of my career, honestly, was the first time I went to a national tournament, I went to the National Junior Olympics. And I was 15 years old. I got disqualified in the regionals the year before because I couldn't make weight. So when I got there, I had never been to a national tournament in my life. And the year before, the guy that won, uh, the guy that was in my weight class won it at 112, I think. He beat a very prominent fighter. There was a guy from St. Louis named Lavelle Finger. So Lavelle and Terrell Finger were twins. They were two of the big names in boxing from the St. Louis area at that time. And everybody knew who they were. This kid had beaten Lavelle, I think, in the finals the year before, the year that I got disqualified in the region. So I never knew what a national tournament even was. I never knew nothing about a national tournament. But these guys that I was been to the national because they went the year before when I got disqualified in the region. So when I went, uh, I made it the next year, and I had a point to prove because I had, got, I had gotten disqualified. I had a chip on my shoulder. So when I get there, everybody was talking, you know, and it's like I battled and battled and battled my way. And I, when I fought, Against the St. Louis team that night, I was in the bathroom one night, the night before the weigh-in, and uh, I was weighed about 123. And the guy, all the guys, like 25 guys in that St. Louis, they're like, yeah, you're going to need that weight tomorrow. You're going to need that weight tomorrow. So I was like, wow, so it was just me in there with 25 of them. So I couldn't do a whole lot of talking. So I just kept on going, kept on getting dressed. And uh, as, I got, as I got dressed, I put my stuff on. I was like, yeah, we do fight tomorrow, huh? And I said, yeah, so I just walked on out. Well, the next day, I beat him worse than I beat anybody at the tournament because they talked to me that night, and there were 25 of them. But now you're in there by yourself with me. You ain't got 25 of y'all. So now what you going to do? And I punished him for all the words that they said to me the night before. <laughs> that was one of my highlights of my career. So anyway, I ended up going on and winning winning the National Junior Olympics that year. That was my very first time ever at a national tournament, and I won it. And that was a whole lot. That was saying a lot because... I really didn't have a full view and understanding of what national meant because I was from a small place called Pensacola, Florida. I, I was young, so I had never really heard of a uh, nothing but teams going to state. You know, I never heard of a high school team going to national. I just heard of high school teams going to state. So I thought state was everything. You know, and I won state Golden Gloves here a couple of times, and a lot of times actually, and I was like Alabama State Golden Gloves champion. So I'm like, state is cool, but when they said national, I had no idea. What national just never registered to me that was the whole nation. So when I got there, I was in shock. But I won it, and I won most outstanding boxer in my division, in the middle division. So it was it was quite an accomplishment because that let me know that I was somebody, I was a formidable opponent, and that they were going to have to deal with me because I won the nationals my first time out. Nobody does that. You win a tournament that you don't even understand. You understand me? I didn't even understand truly what national meant. And I still want it because I had a chip on my shoulder from getting disqualified in the regional the year before. There we go. That's a beautiful story, Roy. That yeah. really is. And I want to 
I want to look back at your pro career. Let's let's start really briefly with your pro debut. Actually, you turned pro May sixth, nineteen eighty nine, against Ricky Randall. You stopped him in two. Do you remember much about coming yeah. out for your debut? Uh, yeah, I was very excited. Everybody was so happy to see me fighting again since the Olympics had happened to me. Everybody wanted to see how I was going to carry on after having that tragic thing happen to me. So I had a bit of a lot to prove because people want to know: Is he going to be the same? Is he going to be different? Is he going to be? It was all we know. Is, is he going to develop into anything, or is he going to let that get to the rest of his career, and is he going to be a flop? So there was a lot of questions that I needed to answer. And uh, we had scheduled eight rounds, and my first, my day, he was scheduled for eight rounds, I think. And um, I was ready to go eight rounds, but, you know, if I got a chance to get him out, I would. So when I got an opportunity, I got him out. Yeah, absolutely. And let's skip ahead to January 10th, 1992. At this point, you're 15-0 and 0 with 15 KOs. Uh, you boxed that night in New York at the Paramount Theatre. You took on former WBC welterweight world champion Jorge Vaca. Now, this guy had 48 wins at the time. So, on paper, much more pro experience than yourself. Uh, but this, this as well was, was by far the toughest fight of your career at that point. But you became the quickest man to stop him. You took him out in just one round, man. Tell me about that. <laughs> man, it was like, I was like so good. And uh, I just, I knew that I would get him because he was, he was strong. He was smart. And he was going to wait for me to wear down. But when I started seeing shots at his chin, I said, oh, wow, I can see his chin pretty good. So I realized he's like jab, keep his hand, keep his right hand low. I said, if he jabs, I'm gonna give him a jab and swap it for a little hook. So I gave him a jab, and when he, as he threw his jab, I kind of went with the jab to my left side. I came back to my left side with a thundering hook to the right side and took him out. One shot, yeah, one it was, round. It was a left hook from hell that shot there. Um, after the, the <laughs> <laughs> after the Vaca fight, you put together five wins, one of which came to Jorge Castro, the first man to ever take you the distance. Uh, then we arrive at May twenty second, nineteen ninety three. At this point, you're twenty one and zero with twenty KOs. Uh, you box for the vacant IBF middleweight world title against future seven time world champion Bernard Hopkins. This would be the first time you ever went 12 rounds. You were able to beat him unanimously. Tell me, Roy, about the night you beat Bernard Hopkins and won the IBF. Your right was hurt. You beat him with the left. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And uh, I knew my right hand was messed up before the fight, but I had to have it. It was a good fight. Bernard could box. And I knew Bernard was a good boxer, but I just knew that he wasn't on my caliber. He wasn't on my left, I mean, say. so he was not my caliber fighter. So I told him before the fight, I said, look, if you can deal with my speed, you might have a chance. I said, well, my speed, I'm fast as shit. And I said, if you deal with speed, your chances are good, but I'm probably fast to do your stuff. He didn't believe it, and he didn't take heed to it. And that's what I killed him with. And how did it feel to become world champion? Because I'm guessing for someone as talented as you, Roy, you probably always thought you could become a world champion. But what was it like? Describe that feeling for me the first time. To be honest with you... To be honest with you, it was a weight lifted off my shoulders because when you turn professional as a boxer, your whole goal is to become a world champ. If you don't ever become a world champ, then you never really accomplish anything. It's worse than guys in the NBA because in the NBA, guys want to get a ring, but it takes a good team to get a ring. In boxing, you get that ring by yourself. So if you can't get that ring, nobody else fails you but yourself. The, the, the management didn't fail you. Uh, the team didn't fail you. The city didn't fail you. The franchise didn't fail you. Nobody fails you in boxing but yourself. 
And and after beating Hopkins, you you have three back-to-back non-title bouts just above 160. Uh, you win all three, including one over future two-time super middleweight world champion Talani Sugarboy Malinga. Uh, your first defense of the IBF came on May 27th, 1994 at the MGM Grand against former middleweight world champion Thomas Tate. Now, Thomas Tate had two years prior gone 12 rounds with one of the hardest punches of all time for me, Julian Jackson. But it only took you two rounds to get him out of there and no one ever, you know, no one ever did that. Tell me about that. Another left hook from hell. <laughs> yeah, Julian Jackson was a very strong puncher, but I was different. I was like, what made me and Mike Tyson different was Julian Jackson and Tyler Heron were very strong punchers. Me and Mike Tyson were very explosive punchers. So it wasn't so much as the strong power as it was the explosiveness. We had speed behind our punches. So it made different things happen. So guys that other guys couldn't knock out, we could because we had explosiveness. If you're explosive with your power, it makes a whole different ball game. So I knew the Hulk was a very strong puncher. He's probably one of the strongest middleweight punchers of all time. But I'm probably the most explosive, explosive middleweight puncher of all time. That's why I knew I could take Thomas Tate out. Yeah, and like I say, no one ever stopped Thomas Tate aside from you. Um, after that fight, you made the move to 168, November 18th, 1994. You challenge for the IBF Super Middleweight World title against the undefeated champion at the time, James Tony. Now, you were the underdog for this fight, which you know. Uh, you'd end up winning the fight unanimously over 12 rounds. But tell me about the, the fight itself and, of course, the left hook that James Tony got. Yeah, a sucker move off the from a game cock, y'all must have forgot. Well, what happened was, <laughs> I knew James Turner had copied several of my moves in fights that he saw previous before we fought. So if you copy my moves, that means you know you're not better than me. I must be better than you or you're going to be copying my moves. But I also knew that he didn't start boxing until late age, so he couldn't be as good as me. You know what I'm saying? So he's good, but he couldn't be technically as sound as I was. Well, I've been fighting since I was 10 years old. He only started in 17 or 18. So when I saw him copying my moves, that made me realize right there that he knew that I was better than him. So he was the man at the time, and I know to be the man, to be the man, you got to beat the man. So I knew I could beat the man, but I knew to get him in front of me. Well, you got to also avoid his power shot because he's a very confident knockout puncher. He's knocking a lot of guys out, and he had confidence. He knocked guys out around 1 through 12. He knocked Prince Charles, Charles Williams out of thing in around 12, a really good fight. So the guy had explosive punching power. He had an immaculate defense, much of like for me with a, a shoulder roll, but what was different was he had a shoulder roll that had thunder behind it. He didn't have a shoulder roll that was playing defense. His shoulder roll had thunder behind it. So I knew that too. So I went into the fight knowing that I gotta go out here and first I gotta set the pace, make him know that I'm not afraid of him, make him know that I'm not I'm not who you think I am, and that I'm gonna give him and teach him the lesson tonight, not him teach me. So by the third round we both had I had come through my hand. He was still trying to get close. He couldn't. He hadn't got there, so he hadn't really showed a lot yet. And it was a momentum point. I knew I had to do something to have the momentum of the fight. If I didn't feel the momentum right there, the fight still could have gone his way. Because I was winning the fight on the scorecard, but he hadn't conceded yet that I was better than him. He still thought he had a chance. He thought if he could just catch up with me, he had a chance to just knock me out. So that third round, I said, you know, it's getting a little bored. Let me see if he'll copy me again. I can copy me in a previous fight. So I gave him to move with the hand down and gave it back to him. I said, oh, I got him now. So I gave it to him again, and as he went to give it back to him again, I jumped out with a leap to the left hook. Boom! He went all the way to the other side of the ring, all of the ropes held him up, which is why the referee gave him an eight count. And from that point, I knew I had him because I took the moment. I seized the moment when there was time for a momentum swing. I seized that moment, and that was the end of the fight. Basically. 
<laughs> and your first defence of that title came March 18th, 1995 against former world title challenger Antoine Bird. Uh, you boxed him at the Civic Centre in Pensacola. You dispatched of him in the very first round. Again, no one ever did anything like that to Antoine Bird. Do you want to give me a word or two on that fight there, Roy? When Antoine Bird came to Pensacola at the press conference, he had a press conference on the beat. We were out overlooked the Gulf. We were overlooking the Gulf. And that man said he got that he does not see me as a world champion. I say, well, for me for him to get up and say he doesn't see me like a world as a world champion and like me saying I'm standing here on this podium and don't see a Gulf of Mexico out there and I don't know there's sharks out there in that water. Or even why that be disrespectful to that water. That's what he's telling me. So tomorrow night I'll teach him a little bit of respect. And come that night I taught him some respect. Yeah, you certainly did. And uh, your second defense of that title came June 24th, 1995 in Atlantic City against former two-weight world champion Vinny Pazienza. You were able to stop the Pasmanian Devil in round six after dropping him three times. Um, it was a great fight while it lasted, actually. But tell us about that one, Roy. I just felt bad. I really didn't want to fight there. The only reason I took the fight was because they gave my friend Derek Morgana a USBA title shot on the undercard. And then I'd done that, and I wasn't trying to buy my mother a house, I would have never taken a fight against Vinny Pazenza because I was afraid I was going to hurt his neck again. I knew he was good, but I knew that I, I could hit him at will. There was nobody that I thought I couldn't hit at will because I was so fast. So, uh, and then sixth round, you know, when I dropped him with the right hand, I think I dropped him first with the right hand, and he fell again. I hit on a slight right hand, but he really fell from fatigue. So I held my hands out. I remember he said, Box, I'm like, look, wherever he's fatigued, but you want me to finish him? I'm going to finish him, but he's done. So I held my hands up and said, okay. I didn't do this. You asked for it, so I hit it with like I think a five or six punch combination at the end there. That was probably five or six of the most uh, prolific punches that I threw in my boxing career because I could have really did devastation with either one of those punches. I only threw him half speed because I wasn't trying to re-break his neck. So and I still was afraid after the fight that I might have injured him because of, because of the angles that I got on him. But I was really trying not to hurt him. Yeah, he's a, he's a good guy, Vinny, and um, yeah, he came like I Very say. Good guy. Came and gave it a go. He was brave. He was very yeah. brave. But um, yeah, that's the fight where you kind of you just shrugged your shoulders and said, "Okay." <laughs> I don't want to do this, but if you tell me to, okay, I got you. <laughs> now the third title defense came on September 30th against Tony Thornton in Pensacola. Uh, Thornton had twice been unsuccessful in the past fighting for world titles. He lost on points to Chris Eubank and James Tony. Um, would it be third time lucky for him? No, of course it wasn't. You stopped him in the third round, funny enough. Uh, tell us about that one as well, Roy. Well, I set him up for a move. I started setting him up for round two for a jab up, jab down. As a matter of fact, I started in round one. Set him up for a jab up, jab down. And I knew that he was a good good, good fighter, a very solid fighter, to take a good punch. But we in Pensacola, I'm not trying to go the distance with you. So I started setting up the jab up, jab down. Castro the only guy with the distance with the Pensacola, I think, at that, ta- at that time. So I'm like, no, he got to get out of here. So I set him up to jab up, jab down. Every time I jab down, he would drop the right hand. So I did it a couple times, round two, and round three. I come back, and I set him up for it again. And he did the same thing. So I jab and look down the third time. I came up with the hook, and bingo, there it was. There it was. And the fourth defense, um, Jacksonville, June 15th, 1996, against, again, future WBC super middleweight world champion Eric Lucas. Um, he retired on his store at the end of round 11. He didn't come out for the final round. What do you remember about that one, Roy? I don't know. Before 
that just proves that a boxer could also be a two-sport person as well. Boxing with a one-dimensional. We ain't only it. There's other people we can do other things, other things too if we're given the opportunity. So I was given the opportunity. So I played a basketball game that morning, and I fought Eric Lucas that night. Like you said, who became the went on to become the WBC super middleweight champion of the world. So it wasn't like I was doing this to people who couldn't box. These guys were champions, former champions, guys who had title shots or future champions. And I still made them look like they weren't really weren't that caliber of me, but that's show you what the pound for pound guy should do to him. And that's where I think that line comes in on, you know, on Yo Must Have Forgot, where you say, um, mm-hmm. they, what's the line? They say, I didn't, I they don't got fight nobody. Say, they got there to say, I don't fight nobody. I, I just, just make, make them, them look, look like, like nobody. nobody. Y'all but to forget. That's it. That's it. I love that line because that's, this is one of those guys, I think, that people probably yeah, thought exactly. that about. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Your fifth world title defense came against the undefeated Brian Brannan. Uh, this one was Friday, October fourth. You knocked Brannan out in just the second round. Once again, another early finish. Do you want to say a couple words on that, Roy? Well, yeah, he wanted to fight early, so we fought early. You feel me? He wanted to make it a dog fight right away, so we made the dog fight right away. <laughs> Sometimes be careful with your expert because you just might get it. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> Your next fight, you decide to make the move up to light heavyweight, and in your first fight at that weight, you box the former light middleweight, middleweight, and light heavyweight world champion Mike McCallum. Now, you didn't stop him, but you didn't lose a single round over 12. Uh, tell me what you remember about that night back in November 1996, of course, at the Ice Palace. I didn't stop him by choice. He was a guy that I looked up to my whole career, who I thought a lot of, who I respected highly. And uh, I knew he fought James Tony. Uh, at the time when I fought him, he was in a situation he needed a little help, and uh, I told him I'd fight him just to give him a little help. You know, what I mean, I didn't want to fight him because he was a guy. He was a guy that I thought a lot of and I idolized him, you know. So, but I knew I was better than him. But I see, I thought a lot of him because so many people ducked him in his prime. He never got to fight the uh, Sugar Leonard's and Tommy Harris of the world because they all wouldn't fight him in his prime. And nobody ever notes that, but all those guys went around. Him, you know what I'm saying? They never would face him. So the body stature deserved it. He fought two good fights with James Turner as an old man. And did good with James Tony, so he asked for you know, a little help. He said he needed a payday. He said, okay, I'll do that. You know, so I gave him a fight. Around uh, 10, I felt like he started like he had handsome. He said, I feel like he had figured me out. And they, I think he may have thought I was going to get to me. Most least thing that was going to happen to me. So around uh, 10, he started coming to the heart, so I had to sit him down for a minute. But as I sit him down, he realized that I could set him down at will, and he got, and he got back in the place when he was going to get to fight. I wasn't trying to hurt Mike McCallum. I thought Mike McCallum was an old man at that time and I shouldn't be fighting him. But because he said he needed the money, I wanted to fight him. And I appreciate it because I was trying to do him a favor. And I wasn't out there expecting him to give me the fight. But if he got a hand, I was going to put him back in the place. So when I changed, he got a hand, so I had to kind of put him back in place. And then he was okay from that point. <laughs> and after that, you're, you're elevated to full WBC light heavyweight world champion. In, and in your first defense, uh, you box in Atlantic City against an undefeated fighter. This was the night your win streak would, would come to an end, uh, which was 34 and, and it, didn't come to, it, 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 it didn't really come to an end. It came to a halt because the commission chose for it to come to a halt. Because Dana Rosenblatt hit, hit uh, Benny Pettis hit Dana Rosenblatt after the bell, and he hit the referee. And all that, and then get disqualified in Atlanta City, New Jersey. Uh, Riddick Bowe hit Jesse Ferguson after he was down, probably two times he was down, and he didn't get disqualified in Atlanta City, New Jersey. I hit Montel Griffin once, we didn't know if he stopped, we didn't so I hit him again, and they immediately disqualified me because I have a clean record. Wow, ain't that ironic? The guy, the nicest guy of all, the guy who's already been robbed at the Olympics, 
the guy who does nothing bad, though, who feels bad for how hard he hits people at times, now you're going to disqualify him when he's the one guy who you know ain't going to try to do nothing bad to a person? And then on top of it, Montel Griffin going to go out and talk like he really beat me, like he went out and dominated the fight of one? Are you kidding me? So the second fight, they brought out the RJ. And that's what happened when you brought out the RJ. Yeah, because like we say, you avenged the loss in just one round. Um, <laughs> just August. I just refought the last round over. The same round he quit in, I told him just to refight that round. And, that's exactly, and I told that before the fight. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, you know, it was... Uh... It was yeah, it was it was devastating that first round. August obviously in Connecticut. Um five months later, as you say, in the rematch, you needed your crown. One punch and he sat down. One punch and he sat down. <laughs> uh that was that was really impressive by the way, because you know, Montel, even though, Thank you me. know, the fight the fight obviously didn't end the way it should have ended. I think we can agree on that. Uh but he was a good fighter, man. He was a good fighter. The way you took him out in the second fight was wow. Wow. Um on to the next one. The next one was a non-title fight. I'm trying to focus more on the world title fights of your career, but I think it's it's only right we mention this one here. Uh, it took you only four rounds to beat this guy. He was, of course, the former IBF and two-time WBA light heavyweight world champion and future two-time cruiserweight world champion. Uh, tell me a, about about the night you stopped Virgil Hill with a body shot. Well, Virgil was a very good puncher, very different type of guy, a very smart guy, had a really good jab. It was different because him having uh, that good of a jab was something I had never seen before. And uh, so, you know, I knew that he was good, he was strong, and he was a big, bigger, physically bigger than me, but I knew that he wasn't that strong in the body. So I kept on throwing a hook right here at his head to make him think I was trying to knock him out with a head shot. And I kept fooling him, kept fooling him. And then when I got him set up to think I was trying to go for the head, I attacked the body vigorously and took him out. That's, uh, that's another great win. Like I say, he went on to move up in weight and win world titles there. Um, this brings us nicely into July 18th, 1998 at the Madison Square Garden. You unified the WBC title with the then WBA world champion, Lou DeVal. Uh, you'd go on to become unified champion after outpointing Lou over 12 rounds despite getting dropped yep. for the first time in your career. Tell me about that one, boy. Well, that's why I used to tell people always you don't fight sparring partners. So you spar with me to teach them how to deal with you. So they learn so much more about you than you do about them because you just use them for sparring to get the rounds in. They're actually learning from you. And that's a typical example of how that goes. That's why I used to always say I don't want to fight the sparring partner. That's why I stopped sparring with Reggie Johnson. I stopped sparring with him. I sparred with him one time back in 1991. I went one round. I got out. My dad said, what you doing? I said, I'm done. He said, why? Because if he be, gets to become world champion, I want that. And you ain't going to be around to tell me I can't get it. Because so if it happens, that's what's going to happen. And I don't want to have to kill him, but no, I don't want to fight him because I spar with him. So that's kind of what that was. And the fight after that came on November 14th against former WBO uh, middleweight world champion Otis Grant. The fight took place in Connecticut. Uh, tell us about the night you defended successfully the unified titles by stopping him in the tenth for a good win again. Yeah, it was a good win. But Otis was a small guy. He was a middleweight, really. He never really was a super middle or light heavy, but he came up with a for challenge. Because he wanted to make some money, and I was the man at the time. And because he had became WBA old champ, I had nothing but the utmost respect for him, so I gave him a shot. But I knew he was going to be too small for me. And then I think after that was the Richard Frazier fight um, in in Pensacola. Uh, you had him down in the first and the second. Uh, January 9th, nineteen ninety nine. Couple words on that. I just it was. It was uh, I want to say that was the one that was, was the. Richard Fraser. I don't remember much about Richard Fraser. So 
Yeah, let's move on from that. Uh, June the 5th, 1999, you held the WBC and WBA titles. You unified again, this time with the IBF champion. Uh, the fight took place in Mississippi. You won unanimously over 12. Tell me about the night you became uh, champion of three organizations, the night you beat Reggie Johnson and took his light heavyweight title from him. That was the night that I've seen what God, God's word really comes to fruition. Because I quit, I stopped Farmer's Jones in 1991. But one round, I got him because I knew I could beat him. And it's strange because God was telling me in my soul that you shouldn't teach this guy to deal with you because you may fight him. 1997, guess what happened? We fight. And the same thing I did to him in round one in Tuscola Farm, I did them for 12 more rounds in Biloxi, Mississippi in a real fight. But I thank God that he talked to me and told me different than my father, different than anybody else could have told me. Because God said that you don't need to be sparring this guy because you're going to fight him. And guess what happened? I fought him and beat him. Yeah. And if you go back and look at that fight, take your time and go in slow motion and watch the left hook, right hand that I knock him down with. There's no way that you're supposed to hit a guy with two hands, opposite hands, on the same side of the face. The stuff happens so fast. I have the left hook on the left side of his face, I mean on the right side of his face, and the straight right hand on the right side of his face. It happened so fast that his face couldn't get back in time when you hit him on opposite sides like you're supposed to. Craziest, fastest combination I've ever landed in a fight. And that brings us into the year 2000. At this point, you're 40 and 1. January 15th in New York, you defend successfully all three belts against David Telasco. He really asked for it, Roy. JD, actually, he had been following me around asking me to fight for quite some time. And the same time I offered him to fight back, he was like, I can't be ready in three feet. I'm like, well, why would you be asking me about a fight and following me around asking me to fight when I come and get you here and I tell you, so I tell you what, if I come again, you ain't ready, I ain't coming no more. So I told you, stay ready, I'll get you, I'll get a chance. Now I got the opportunity to get you, and you don't want it. So now next time I come, you're ready. So January 15th, uh, we scheduled the fight. January, December, December 9th, I jump on my motorcycle, my Laura, and both my, and Frank's my, four, my, my, my left wrist. My wrist is fractured, and everybody said, well, you should pull out of the fight. I'm like, I'm fighting for the first time ever, boxing, the radio city music hall. Whitney Houston would be there to say, God bless America. Let the man, the red man, would be walking me out. If you think I'm pulling out, you crazy. If God meant for me to pull out, I would have broke my hand completely. So, fracture, I can beat David Jensen. If I beat Benoit Hopkins with one hand, why can't I beat David Jensen with one hand? Now, I know it's the other hand, or the busy hand, but still, if I can beat Benoit with my busy hand, why can't I beat David Jensen with my left busy hand? And that's what happened. The next fight took place May 13th in Indianapolis. Uh, you knocked out in round 11. The big punch in Southpaw, Richard Hall. Uh, do you remember much about that night there, Roy? That was one of the funnest nights I ever had because I had Mystical uh, rapping with me in the ring. And uh, it was a really fun night. Richard Hall was a big puncher. But the problem he had was that, well, yeah, he's a big puncher, but you got to be able to hit it in order to knock it out. And I knew he couldn't hit it. And, of course, your next defense would, would also be successful. You box Eric Hardin, who had previously beaten Montel Griffin uh, in the fight. Right before fighting you, he also took Antonio Tarvazo. Uh, the night you fought him, though, New Orleans, he retired on his store at the end of the 10th, September 9th, 2000. Do you remember that one, Roy? His arms, first time in a long time that they seen a fighter do what the old school fighters used to do, by beating his arms. I beat his arms so bad that he couldn't take it no more. You know what I mean? That, that, that's pretty fascinating because how many guys of this era do you know that are disciplined enough to stick to, commit to, and stick to 
beating a guy's arms for 10 10 rounds. No, another brilliant win, like I say. Uh, Now we're in 2001, February. You box in Tampa against... Uh, the 20-1 Southport, Derek Harmon. Harmon's corner stopped it after the 10th. Um, what do you remember about that one, Roy? I remember that he was a pretty good fighter. I knew he was a pretty good fighter, but I was looking at too fast for him. And I think he rushed to the ears right in time. That's what ultimately caused me to stop the fight. Roy, let me just quickly say, the signal is a tiny bit in and out. Just a tiny bit. The next one came on July uh, July 28th, 2001 at the Staples Center against future WBO light heavyweight world champion, the undefeated 27-0 Julio Cesar Gonzalez. Again, you're pretty much able to shut him out over 12 rounds. Do you want to say a couple words on that one, Roy? Yeah, Julio Cesar Gonzalez was a very big guy, a very strong puncher who would take a whole lot. But you got to know when you fight the Mexican opponent that they're known for their toughness and their chin. Yeah. Yeah, and like I say, he was he's one of the few guys at that point that that, that went the distance with you. Uh, the title defense after that came in Miami, February second, two thousand and two, against the undefeated Australian Glenn Kelly. You took him out in the seventh. Another one. Yeah, I was known, but it was a really good fight. But I had beat him so much that I had to find a back back and uh, let him. I had to put my hand behind my back in order to get him to punch, so that I can counter punch and get him out. I hit him with every counter punch that you could be hit with throughout the eight-round period, so he got discouraged, and he didn't want to punch anymore. Beautiful, man. And your next fight, uh, September 7th in Portland, Oregon, against future IBF light heavyweight world champion, the UK's very own Clinton Woods. You were able to knock him out in the uh-huh. sixth. Do you remember much about that? He was a, he was a tough guy, Clinton, man. Uh, another very good fighter, very tough guy. Uh, I knew the body shots were having an effect on him early, but he was a very tough fighter made me bring my A game because I knew that he was game and that he was going to come at me all night. Six months later in Vegas, when you, you made the jump up to heavyweight to fight the reigning WBA heavyweight world champion at the time, John Ruiz, uh, you weighed in at 193. Uh, Ruiz, of course, came in at 226. You were given away, like I say, 33 pounds in weight. You broke a record by becoming the only fighter ever to start off at 154 pounds and to go on and win a heavyweight world title when you outpointed Ruiz over 12. That's I still cannot believe it. Like That's just such a crazy achievement, man. Tell me about that, Roy. Amazing. Well, I just wanted to make history. I was doing everything I could do in my lower weight class, but... I realized it had been over 106 years since somebody had gone from middleweight championship to heavyweight championship. And to be able to do that after turning pro as a junior middleweight, nobody had ever achieved that accomplishment after turning pro as a junior middle. So it was a whole lot of opportunities to make history. I felt like I was the best boxer doing it. And if there's anyone that could make history, just like how I, when I played the basketball game and boxed the same day, if there was any boxer that could do something different, I felt like it was me. So I shot out to do it. And Roy, was it always the plan to only have one fight at heavyweight? Why take? Why put that kind of pressure on my body? You know, like if you look at Michael, not um, uh, Chris Bird. When Chris Bird came back down to light heavyweight, look how quick he got taken advantage of. Yeah, 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 yeah. I had Chris on um, a few a few months ago. Um, A lot of people said that they wished. Now that you, you know, if, if they look back, if they could go back in time, a lot of people wish that you'd retired after beating Ruiz and kept your record 48-1. and yeah. one. What's your thoughts on that, Roy, yeah. if you could go back in time? 
Uh, I thought I should did that too, but the problem with that was was that they'd already given me one loss. And so when you got one loss, what difference does it make? You retire one loss, okay, cool. What's different one loss and five or six loss? And you shoot, I wasn't supposed to have no loss. They disqualified me and gave me a bull crap loss. That they give a bull crap loss was to you. And then I was kind of misinformed because I thought that uh, the, the great, uh, uh, um, what's the guy that won the light heavyweight? Bob Pitemis. I thought Bob Pitemis won the middleweight, light heavyweight, heavyweight, then recaptured the light heavyweight. I know he won middleweight, uh, uh, light heavyweight. I know he won middleweight, heavyweight, then light heavyweight. So I thought I had to go do exactly the right way he did it and go win all three up, then come down and recapture the light heavyweight title. So that's why I did it that way. And like I say, you made the move to, you know, when you made the move to heavyweight, you vacate the IBF and WBC world titles at, at 175. Mm-hmm. You kept the WBA. After winning the heavyweight world title, you drop back down, like you say, um, eight months later in Las Vegas against the man who picked up your two vacated belts, Antonio Tarver. Um, Antonio had to vacate the IBF to, to, you know, for the fight to take place. So ultimately, it was for his new WBC title, which you'd vacated, and your WBA, which you were able to hold on for. Um, this this meant, you know, it was yet another unification fight on your record. You're able to beat Antonio Tava by split decision after 12 that night, November 2003. Tell me about it, Roy. It was a rough night. I was weak as I ever been in the fight. Um, first time ever in the fight that I didn't have the energy, energy to do what I wanted to do. So it was the first time that I had to rely, rely on something that I teach my fighters. We never want to rely on it, but if we need to rely on it, it's there. And after that night, I had to prove that. So that night, I had, to re- I had to rely on my heart because I didn't have enough energy to operate with the skill, but I did have the heart. I had to rely on my heart to pull me through. My heart pulled me through definitely. And the rematch obviously took place six months later at the same venue, the Mandalay Bay. This uh, brings us obviously to May 2004. This time you get stopped in the second round and dethroned of the titles. Uh, you got caught with a left hook with your feet squared up, I feel. Is there anything else to, to add to that one, Roy? No, that was it, man. It was just tough. I should let my body regroup after I came back down the line. But I didn't give my body enough time to regroup. And only four months later, you returned to the ring in Memphis, Tennessee, against the reigning IBF world champion, Glenn Johnson. On this occasion, you stopped in the ninth. Um, yeah. a, a, a bad performance from you there. What's your thoughts on that? I was just dehydration, same thing. Should have given my body more time to recover as I came back from, like, from every week. Gained all that weight and muscle, and then it took it all off and didn't give my body enough time to recover. Now we arrive at October 1st of 2005. You're coming off, at this point, just over a year of it, uh, of inactivity. You end up having that third fight with Antonio Tarver in Tampa, this time um, a unanimous decision loss. Roy, give me a couple words on that fight, and also, do you kind of view this portion of your career there being past your best or just a rough patch? No, I was past my best at that time. I didn't really have anything else I really wanted to do. I just fight my a, I don't care to fight. I'll fight anybody in the time. B, boxing was what I loved, and boxing loved me, so I just didn't still give me sport what I could, you know. Uh, but I didn't have no goals. I should have had goals at that point. What I, what I realized before that point was that, well, right after, after that point, I'd say, that if you don't have a goal, then we, we should even support. So if I didn't have a goal in the first time fight, I would have lost that fight because I had a goal to win and regain the lightweight title. That's why I didn't lose the fight. Had I not had a goal, I had nothing to dig down deep for. I probably would have lost the first fight. So 
but I didn't because I had gold. And I covered that gold. That was the last gold I accepted myself in boxing. We went to win the heavyweight title. Then come back and we cast the right heavyweight title. And that was it. And I probably should have stopped right there, but I didn't. All the fights after that, they were good. The Joe Calzada, all the other fights, they were good fights. They were decent fights. And they were because I don't duck and dodge nobody. You know what I'm saying? That's the, that's the reason for those fights most of them. I don't duck and dodge nothing. And that's what I was talking about at that point. I hadn't set any goals. Let me touch on a, a couple of those you mentioned You mentioned there, Roy. Obviously, you know, nine months after that fight, you, you pick up two wins, the first in Idaho, the second in Mississippi, against two decent guys, to be honest. That's when you get the call to fight um, January 19th, 2008, at the Madison Square Garden against Felix Trinidad. Now, albeit Trinidad was coming off almost three years out of the ring, but you're able to outpoint him and add another fine name to, to, your, to your win list, you know. That was a, that was a great win as well. Well, it was a great win, but I had torn a bicep the week uh, the week before the fight. So that's when you know, my body was starting to break apart and deteriorate because the week before the fight, I tore my left bicep. He never would have lasted as long as he did had I not had a torn bicep. So I knew he was too small to really cause the problem. So that's why that was an easy win. It looked like a brilliant fight, but it really wasn't because I had a torn left bicep the whole time. Okay. Wow. I didn't know that, man. Uh, ten months yeah. after that, you're back again in in Madison Square Garden, like you said, against the the uh, the undefeated former unified super middleweight world champion Joe Calzaghe. You had him down on in, you know in the first round, but obviously you end up losing a decision over twelve. Um, how good was 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 Joe Calzaghe in your opinion, Roy? And how would he have matched up with you perhaps a few years earlier on? Uh, still, skill he couldn't have matched up with me at all, but he had a very good work rate, and that's what saved him. So. That work rate at my age at that point it was much higher than my work rate. So, and I wasn't as sharp as I was in my prime to really be able to catch him again with a sharp shot. So, once he got warmed up, you could you could hardly catch him because he he wasn't a bad fighter at all, but he had a really high work rate. His offense was his defense. In my prime, he wouldn't have had a chance because if I could get you down, I'm going to get you out because I was so fast and so on point. At that point, you know, it was, good. It was a great fight by him. I don't take nothing from him. It was a great night for him. Uh, he did a great job. and but like I said, my prime, no, he would not have had a chance with me. And again, after that, you bounce back once again uh, with two good wins, to be honest. A fifth round uh, knockout win over over four-time world title challenger Omar Sheikha. After that, you become the first man to ever stop Jeff Lacey when you did so in round 10. Um, but like we say, after mm-hmm. that, your best days, you know, were, were well and truly over by then. The three losses in a row, especially that first one to to Danny Green, you mm-hmm. know, and, and then the points lost to Bernard, uh, then the loss to right. to Lebedev. Do you want to say anything on any of those, Roy? No, they were good fights. Those guys had great nights. Those nights, and that's just what it was. And again, after that, you you still went on to have thirteen pro fights after that and you know there's only one I really want to go into after those three back-to-back losses you you put together an eight-fight win streak before boxing in Moscow against former cruiserweight world champion Enzo Macronelli now to this day Enzo tweets on Twitter jokingly like to annoy people that he beat a prime Roy Jones Jr which he obviously didn't um, and, and it really annoys people, Roy, because, you know, there's haters that are stupid enough to, to actually take it seriously. I'm wondering if I can get you to simply just say the words, Enzo Macronelli beat me in my prime, just to send it to him so he can troll these guys. <laughs> no, I would not never say that. <laughs> After 
after the, the Enzo fight, though, Roy, you gathered a further four wins before retiring in 2018 with a record officially 66 wins, 47 by KO, and just nine losses. Um, I want to go through some real quick questions before we wrap it up, if that's okay, Roy. Yeah, right. What was your most satisfying win of all those wins you had? The second fight against myself, Griffin McCarthy, Rob McGee, and that was the first time I've been robbed after the Olympics. Mother took my O away from me, and that made me really, really angry and upset because people didn't understand what that O meant. Had they not took that O from me then, I probably still would be undefeated now because I could have retired after winning the heavyweight title, and definitely after winning that first fight with uh, Tarver, I could have retired and been undefeated. That would that would have worked out better for me, but the, the, to be able to go back and take that back was the most uh, satisfying victory probably of my career. And Roy, you could punch hard yourself. You were real explosive. Who would you say, though, was the hardest puncher you've ever been hit by in all those fights? Probably the hardest puncher I fought was Monkey Sosa. Was who, sorry? Monkey Sosa. Oh, wow, okay. I didn't expect you to say yeah, that. Monkey Sosa. Yeah, Monkey Sosa was the hardest puncher, and James Hunter was the best boxer. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I want to ask you as well, Roy, if you could go back and change anything at all, have you got any regrets now looking back? No, whatsoever. And that's the best answer. I love when people tell me that because that is the best answer. It's, it's obviously not good to, to live with all these regrets. Mm-hmm. And and Roy, who was... I, I think you kind of answered this question. I was going to say, who's the best all-round fighter you ever Tony. boxed? Yeah, James Tony. Okay. James Tony, by far. Is there anyone, Roy, that if you... Is there anyone that you wish you'd have had the chance to fight, but for whatever reason it didn't happen during your career? But you did box everyone, like I say. Yeah, I probably boxed everybody that I could, but I would have loved to have fought Steve Collins and Nigel Ben and even Fish Bank Senior. Those would have been great fights, but I tried to do my best and they just it never happened. So and not in my prime. Later on they try to get like Larry they try to get a fight being it's crazy at this point, but in our primes I did try to fight him. Wow, man. You against Nigel Ben would have been exciting, man. That's for, that's for sure. Um, I want to ask you as well, Roy, who's your... I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. Who comes to mind if I ask who's your favourite UK fighter of all time? Any any era, any generation, who springs to mind? Nassim Hamid. Okay. <laughs> that's the most popular answer, man. Everyone says him. <laughs> What did you like about him? Obviously, all the showmanship. Showmanship. He gave the world something different, like I did. Yeah. Okay. And just finally, Roy, we've we've whizzed through everything pretty quickly there. Um, what's your closing message just to the listeners? Obviously, over here in the UK, man, you, I don't have to tell you. People love you over here, man. They absolutely love you. What's your message to those guys that supported you your whole career? I love everybody in the UK that supported my whole career. I thank you guys. You guys love and understand boxing. I love you guys for that. Thank you. And I'm sorry that I never got a chance to perform during my prime. But with things going where they are, with these exhibitions and old fights coming back, it's still very possible that we might be able to make that happen. So if I ever get the opportunity, and it's a good opportunity for me, I would definitely love to bless you guys with at least one performance. And we'd love to have you over here. We don't mind. Even if you're 150, we'd love you over here, Roy. Listen, it's unbelievable doing this with you. Thank you for, for so much of your time. God bless you, and I hope we can we can meet in the flesh one day. Thank you. God bless you too, my brother. 
Okay, and this wraps up episode 289 of the Box Hard Podcast. I've been your host, Joey Coastman. Eddie Chambers has been with me for the duration of the show. A massive thank you to our two guests on this week's podcast, the reigning British light heavyweight champion, Craig Richards, and the former four-weight world champion, the living legend, Mr. Roy Jones Jr. I do apologize for some of the bad sound during the Roy Jones interview. He did it from his ranch in the United States, and the signal isn't great down the bottom of the ranch and when he gets up to the top the signal's pretty good there but as I'm sure you heard there's a there's a number of loud chickens roaming around um, there has been one or two uh, pieces of news break whilst we've been recording this show Bradley Skeet makes his ring return on June 4th in Sheffield he's now fighting out of the Ingle gym he'll be coming off two and a half years of inactivity all the best to him MTK Global have signed the unbeaten cruiserweight Dion Juma a man who really needs to get going in his career and in other news it it is happening it's unbelievable Floyd Mayweather has agreed to fight Logan Paul June the 6th in Miami not only is the fight on the same night as Teofimo Lopez against George Cambosos Jr but it's in the same state Um, it is just a a complete circus I cannot believe we're actually getting to see this Uh, but anyways that's it from myself enjoy your weekends people stay safe thanks once again for listening and I hope you all come back again next week